Hey, welcome to ENS 2020. Uh, I am Chris. That is Spencer. And Hello. Spence, I have a question for you. Okay. Have you ever tried to coach a patient out of having a fractured femur? Have you ever tried to coach a STEMI I mean, patient into not being a STEMI? I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to assume it went about as well as it did for this paramedic because, uh, yeah, we're going to see what happens when you try to coach somebody out of their uh, legitimate uh, issues because of uh, some biases you may have. So, Okay. I'm excited. Yeah. So let's get into the call. So this call uh, takes place in an urban area at an urgent care. So uh, the... 911 response is a four-person fire crew with two paramedics and two EMT basics and a private ambulance company with one paramedic, a paramedic intern, and one EMT basic. So the 911 call is received from the urgent care stating they have a 23-year-old female that's in acute respiratory distress. Dispatch center relays to the responding crews that they are having a difficult time gathering any patient information as the person on the phone from the facility is not with the patient, and I know that you're just stunned right now, Spence. Uh, what? Yeah, I know. And there seems to be a level of panic on the other side of the phone conversation with the caller just stating uh, that, hey, they're telling me the patient's declining rapidly. We need people. It's basically what's coming oh, over the... Okay. Yeah. So here's the thing. I know it's a little soon to do this. Uh, normally, we give a little more information. But Spence, if that was your information going on a call, uh, going to a call, Tell me everything that's going through your mind on everything that's going through your mind on what you think this is. And don't just give it because I know that you, Spencer, as a paramedic, you're only going to think about the most legitimate medical concerns that you may have for this person. But I want you to transport yourself into maybe the body of a lesser paramedic that maybe have, I don't know, some other inclinations as to what's going on. So with that information, 23-year-old female, respiratory distress, uh, what are some things you think that could possibly be going on at the surgeon care? Well, you know, hmm. I'll transport myself into the the guy who's like thirty charts down, right? You know, with like an hour left on the shift, and you know, my wife wants dinner tonight, uh, and she's made plans. Um, you know, all the all the awful things. Um, and I would, you know, like my my first thought maybe is, maybe you've been a paramedic the, for about four years. Yeah, maybe, maybe about four years. Uh, my first thought, and it's not necessarily that it's wrong, and it's also my hope, is that yeah, this is nothing. That it's, you know, like maybe some kind of anxiety disorder. Maybe it's some kind of like, you know, like just, my, you know, asthma attack and that the caller is a new employee at mm-hmm. the <laughs> urgent care, you know. Uh, and, and anyway, that's sort of my hope. But those are probably going to be dashed because it is an urgent care and somebody has suggested that they are losing her or that she's declining rapidly. Right. Now, there's also sometimes I think paramedics have a tendency to think that or responders tend to think that, hey, like emergencies are our bag. And sometimes facilities that maybe don't deal with emergencies as much tend to panic when a real emergency walks in. So... Especially yeah. when it's the whole, like, the caller's not with the patient sort of thing. Like, we get that all the time. Yeah, when there there is a disconnect between the person like, oh, hey, we need to call 911 to get an ambulance. And mm-hmm. that person maybe not, go, like, not realizing, like, oh, that's 
they just need an ambulance to get this per- like to transfer this person. Yeah, and statistically speaking, a twenty-three-year-old typically healthy. healthy. Yeah, yeah. You know, statistically speaking, so there is. I mean, it's never right to prejudge the scene this much, but there's some presence there to say, "Hey, I have a twenty-three-year-old female. I have someone who isn't even with the patient. For all I know, someone said, "Hey, call nine one one, and this person panicked." Anyway, moving on. So. What had happened was that the patient had come into the urgent care and sat down while her boyfriend checked her in. One of the CNAs that worked at the urgent care was passing through the lobby uh, and saw that the patient was sitting in the lobby and noted that she was like blue in the face, breathing rapidly, just didn't look good. Uh, So she lets the PA know. Uh, The patient is immediately moved to one of the exam rooms in the back so that a PA could examine the patient. So the PA finds the patient. And here's a quick note on PA. So PA, I mean... Most people know what this is, but, you know, if you're a demographic, if you're an up-and-coming paramedic student, a PA, by the way, is a physician's assistant. Now, that might strike you as odd that a physician's assistant would be the top level of care here, but that's actually pretty common. Physician's assistants can do quite a bit. They can prescribe. um, They can care for patients quite thoroughly. So it's actually not uncommon to have a physician's assistant Uh, being the primary level of care for your patient or the highest level of care for your patient or the highest level of care currently at a clinic. That's not uh, entirely unfounded. So anyway, uh, the the physician's assistant goes in there and assesses lung sounds and finds that this patient has bilateral inspiratory wheezes. Uh, The SAO2 is in the low 80s and the respiratory rate is in the 40s. Patient was only able to speak in one or two word sentences, and the PA then orders administration of of albuterol alongside uh, placing the patient on a simple mask with four liters per minute of O2. Now, I don't know that the PA said, hey, there's wheezing, put them on albuterol, and then place them on a simple mask at four liters, because a simple mask at four liters, not effective. There's a good chance that the PA just said, hey, get them on albuterol, get them on oxygen. And someone said, hey, here's a simple mask, and then turned the thing up to four liters. It's entirely possible. That's possible. But either way, so that's what they ended up with. They got some albuterol and some oxygen, and and then what happened? All right. So right around this time, fire department arrives. So- Fire department arrives and they know that the patient's skin condition does not appear to be cyanotic at this point, which was what was reported over the 911 call. Mm-hmm. Respiratory rate is elevated. SAO2 reading using the urgent care's pulse oximeter is still reading in the 80s. So at this point, the fire department on scene notices that the patient is actually wearing the simple mask around her neck while she poorly uses the inhaler. She's able to speak huh. in short sentences. So a brief tangent, if I will. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, ooh, exciting. It's kind of like a yeah. choose your own adventure book. You never know where it's going to go. <laughs> um, but it's the little things that count sometimes. So here's the thing. It's really easy to kind of knock this urgent care for being like, okay, so you threw some interventions at her, but didn't make sure that any of it worked. And she has a simple mask around her neck. That's not going to be effective. But this is kind of something that happens uh, often, especially in new paramedics. I like to call it uh, um, simutitis, and it comes from running a lot of simulated scenarios that don't have a good practical component 
or when you don't have a lot of experience. So what has happened here and what often happens is it's very. Let me see if I can, let me see if I can kind of guess what happened. Go for it. Uh, based on that definition. And we'll see if I got it. So simultitis, is that uh Inflammation of the simula? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, this is actually a real thing. It's not made up at all by me just now. It's uh, it's a real <laughs> oh, thing. Oh, so we can't, we can't trademark it. Great. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we could. <laughs> there goes our hope. It's a, you know, like you're, you're used to doing scenarios and therefore you kind of drop those little pieces, you know, uh, like for instance, you know, you know that the patient has to go on, say, like oxygen Um and so you put the simple mask like on them and then it just sort of dangles around their neck and you think that the task is done because, hey, we said and verbalized oxygen and we sort of did an oxygen. Exactly. Thing. Exactly. Or like, you know, um, one of the things, uh, you know, like if she's ineffectively using the nebulizer for instance you know like she's just like it's sitting at her side just continuously nebulizing right. the air around her hand her wrist um yeah yeah uh i mean that's you, your hands gotta breathe right <laughs> so um but that's because when you're running the simulation and you've never actually put any like put together the little acorn or whatever to put the albuterol in and hook up that nebulizer like if you've never actually done that then you know, like it, it becomes, that becomes a struggle or remembering that it doesn't matter if it's all put together and oxygen is nebulizing stuff. If the patient isn't inhaling it, you've done exactly. the task. Here's so. the problem that it presents. I mean, you're exactly right, but here's the problem that it presents. What it is, is when you're doing a test, you'll say, all right, I would give them nebulized albuterol. And then you get into the real world and you're like, shit, I got to give them nebulized albuterol. And you put it together and you hand it to them. But because the only ever time, the only time you ever done this before was during a scenario where you just talked about it, you don't know that in the real world, you got to watch and actually make sure they inhale that shit. It's just not <laughs> anything that comes through your brain. And that is simutitis. Anyway, so moving back to where we were at. So the fire department is concerned about the patient's condition, uh, and they also appreciate some wheezing bilaterally. So while they didn't find the patient's skin to be as reported, uh, you know, like I said earlier, they didn't find it to be cyanotic. They're like, hey, there's some wheezing here. There is something going on. So Spencer, what now? What are you thinking is a possibility here? Now that I got a little more, well, then I'd want to kind of dig into her history. Like, does she have a history of asthma, for instance, or, you know, like bronchi bronchitis, um, you know, or, or some kind of other, you know, inflammatory disease that causes, you know, wheezing and, and respiratory distress. Um, sure. Those would be kind of the, the, the big ones I'd pick off. So you're uh, thinking a likely candidate here is going to be bronchoconstriction due to the wheezing. Yeah, I mean, if exactly. if that's what they're getting and her oxygen sats are, are down. Um, yeah, yeah, but it is on the Urgent Cares SPO2, which, by the way, doesn't have a pleth wave readout. Oh, gotcha. Okay, but, so th but that might be. that's what they have. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so here's um, the thing. Oh, go yeah. ahead. No, so that, that sort of sums it up. I mean, I'd, you know, like, I'd, I'd, I'd be curious if the SPO2 monitor is actually accurate. That's a fair, that's a fair guess, especially because a lot of times they aren't. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about pleth waves. If you're not familiar with what a pleth wave is, um, if you look on an SpO2 that most cardiac monitors, such as like 
One agency I work at uses a Zoll X-Series. Another agency that I also work at uses a Philips MRX. And it's basically where you put the pulse ox on and you see the little blue line that goes up and down. Having a pleth wave is actually super helpful because it kind of lets you know that the SpO2 monitor on their finger is actually picking something up because you can get all sorts of wonky ass readings. The problem is a lot of these little urgent carriers carry one that just kind of alligator clamps on the finger and it doesn't have a pleth wave readout. And so it's yeah, like, just, okay, is it 80% or not? Yeah, it spits up. It don't, the only thing it puts out is a numeric value. Um, and there's yeah. pictures, there's like videos of the internet of people like, I'm defying natural laws because look at this. My SPO2 is 2%. And that's like they're waving their finger with the pulse oximeter on. And it's that's right. the number it's reading. And it's like, that's that that's not how that works. Yeah, but exactly. Yeah. So, Thanks for your YouTube video. <laughs> exactly. Like and subscribe. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, and subscribe to us as well. Uh, but anyway, so yeah. <laughs> Exactly. So anyway, so the ambulance company actually arrives in quick order. So right around the time the fire department is like, hey, there are some ways that this patient isn't good. Uh, the ambulance department or the ambulance company arrives. OK. The senior paramedic comes in and is immediately skeptical of the entire call uh, from the patient's condition to the SAT readings, everything. The ambulance crew begins to suspect that the patient's condition uh, is actually better than reported for a couple of reasons. The patient's skin is not cyanotic, as was initially reported. The crew assumes that the care providers that do not routinely deal with emergencies are likely panicked, especially given the 911 call that comes over. And I'm going to give them a little leeway here. And this is kind of the only leeway I'm going to give this crew. But um, in all fairness, saying, hey, the patient's deteriorating, but I'm not with them is pretty panicked. So... Fair. Sure. But whether or not they're justifiably panicked, it's a different story. And I think this crew is kind of leaning more towards the unjustifiable panic realm. So the treatment provided, which is a single nebulizer and ineffectively administer O2, uh, should not account for the patient's improvement had the patient actually been worse off before they got there. This is from their perspective. Uh, gotcha. And no one had placed the patient on an SAO2 monitor with a pleth wave readout, potentially meaning that the readings for, of low SA2 we're wrong. Okay. So, hey, so just to just to clear the so n- like the fire department showed up and they see the oxygen um you know necklace that she's wearing. Yeah. And exactly. the and you know and she's you know got the nebulizer down by her hand but n- nobody was like, "Oh hey, you should breathe that." Like nobody corrected that at this point, right? No one had corrected it at this point, but we had to give the fire department some leeway. This is pretty much like I mean the fire department walked in so like, hey, this person's sitting here wheezing in a chair. I don't even need my stethoscope. And then the ambulance walked in. So it's not okay, like they gotcha. sat there and fiddle fucked around. They were just kind of walking in. The ambulance was like right behind them. So. Oh, OK. Fair yeah, enough. We'll, right. give, we'll give them some leeway here. Uh, so the ambulance crew starts asking questions that are more centered around anxiety while placing the SAO2 monitor from the from the fire department's uh, monitor onto the patient's finger. The patient and her boyfriend state that the patient does have issues with anxiety, but typically self-medicates using marijuana. The patient has not used marijuana today. So here is where... Solved it. (laughs) Nailed it. Um, So here is where things start to get a bit bit interesting or maybe sideways, depending on your point of view. So the SAO2 reading from the fire department's monitor comes back at 90 to 91%. 
essentially on room air at this point because like you called it the oxygen necklace it's not delivering oxygen very effectively though they're probably getting some blow by but at four liters a minute hanging around your neck at, you may go from like a 21 percent to a 23 percent you know like <laughs> right. nothing's yeah not a huge difference here yeah. uh and the patient isn't really holding <laughs> the nebulizer to her face so she's not getting any of this stuff that she needs uh the patient's gotcha. worker breathing uh the patient's worker breathing is substantial and wheezing is still audible so regardless of this the senior paramedic from the ambulance company starts to try and coach the patient's breathing asking her to slow down her respiratory rate what are your thoughts on that, Spencer? Um, yeah, I don't think that's uh, going to be helpful here. Right. Because here's the thing. We have some pretty decent clinical findings at this point that SATs are low. Respiratory yeah. efforts up. Wheezes are present. But regardless, the patient attempts to do this anyway. She's following the paramedics uh, instructions, which, by the way, kudos to this patient, because there are people who are fucking fine that I cannot get to follow my instructions. She's trying to breathe and she is literally going to follow instructions to breathe less because the paramedic told her to do it. So, you know what, lady, like rock on. Like, I'm sorry you had to follow these instructions, but still like, thank you for trusting us that much. Uh, that you even, would, even though we were wrong and you should never trust us again. Right. right. <laughs> even though apparently lesson learned, you know, but uh, still. <laughs> so the patient attempts this and is actually temporarily successful at reducing her own respiratory rate. Uh, but then she also reduces her own SAO2 with that and immediately resumes her rapid respiratory rate, probably more rapid than before. And at this point, this is where the fire department on scene steps in and is like, hey, the clinical findings are not consistent with anxiety, dude. Like, this is more consistent with bronchoconstriction. The ambulance crew, namely the senior, states that they agree at this point that, quotes here, something else uh, could be occurring, but insist that her level of anxiety isn't helping. Oh, I love this. It's like, uh, maybe I'm wrong, but I'm not going to give, like, I'm not going to, yeah. like, well, I mean, like, I'm still sort of right, even though I'm totally wrong. <laughs> and here's the thing. Here's the thing. It, you're not right at all. Because here's the thing. If you are, if you are short of breath, your anxiety is going to be pretty high. If you don't believe me, have someone hold you in a pool uh, face down for longer than you want to. Your anxiety level raises up when you can't breathe. So this guy, anyway. For legal reasons, do not follow any of the instructions given by Chris <laughs> with a pool and another person. Or a baby. Just or a bit, yeah. Just throw that. Jesus. <laughs> Too far, man. Too far. All right. All right. They say the level of anxiety isn't helping. A horseshit thing to say. But the fire crew insists on at least starting a do-and-up treatment, which the ambulance crew, namely the senior, agrees to. While making the comment of this is going to hurt you a little bit, Spencer. Oh, Trying no. not to get her too amped up with the administration of too much albuterol. Oh, Jesus. Although the two groups seem to be coming to an agreement on scene, things start to go a little awry in the back of the ambulance. So the senior paramedic keeps attempting to coach the patient into breathing at a slower rate. While the paramedic intern gains IV access and suggests Decadron as a treatment. At this hmm. point, the patient's SAO2 has fallen below 90%, and the senior paramedic is now committed, finally, to the idea that bron bronchodilation is key treatment for this patient. So, this also marks the first time that anybody 
ask the patient's entire medical history as opposed to just those pertinent to the path that they wanted to take. This is a bit of confirmation oh. bias here. Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I, I'm, I'm curious what that means. So this is the first time that they've asked. So nobody prior to this. I'm, I'm guessing that the PA probably ran through some questions and that just, that never translated over to the fire department or to, you know. Possibly. Uh, but you also got to think about it like the PA saw a blue, and they were probably right, but she saw a, a blue patient that needed immediate treatment and patient could only speak in short sentences and otherwise didn't have too much of a remarkable history that they knew of. So maybe it got missed, maybe it didn't. But yeah, you're right. This is the first time, at least this is the first time that the responding crew is going to get a total history. So okay. The patient ends up revealing that over the past four weeks, she has been dealing with a persistent pneumonia, recently completing her second round of antibiotics. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So the patient states that she has, uh, that she also has asthma, though she rarely needs to use an inhaler. She hasn't used an inhaler for years. And the patient oh, okay. states that at no time over the past four weeks, four weeks, has she felt any relief from her symptoms and it has been getting progressively worse until today. She woke up today and has been feeling short of breath for the entire day. That's essentially what she what she has going on. So, <clears throat> sounds like anxiety to me, right? Pretty much. So here's what ends up happening is. So initially, the SATs dip below 90 at the start of the transport. However, by the time they get start getting closer to the hospital, saturations get up to about 98 percent. Okay. Uh, as they're getting closer, the intern suggests starting a second duoneb because the first duoneb is running low. Uh, Decadron's already been given, and the senior paramedic puts the kibosh on the second duoneb. What? Why? Well, here's the reasons for the second duoneb. Although the the intern. <laughs> The reason the senior paramedic said no is because the senior medic's like, look, they're at 98%. We've given Decadron. 98% fine. The intern makes the point of, yes, she's at 98%, but her work of breathing has not improved. And yeah. because she's still working hard for 98%, we should be giving another duoneb. The senior paramedic, and this is the quote from how the story came to me, says, all right, finally, I'm going to have to put my foot down on all these interventions. This isn't necessary. We are not going to administer a second duoneb. And then pretty much the call ends. They transfer the patient from the ambulance to the emergency room crew uh, where they continue nebulized treatments. And what? Uh, yeah, no. it's just mind blowing. Um, so can we add sound effects like here? Just explosions, just <laughs> nonstop <laughs> explosions. <laughs> yeah, laser beams. Um, and actually kind of another fun point, and I'm not going to make, I'm not going to try and stretch too far for this, but kind of another fun point is it did turn out that four weeks ago at the start of this pneumonia, she had been vaping marijuana. And you guys may have recalled, it's kind of out of the news now because there's a few other things going on. At the time though, vaping was causing a lot of something that they called popcorn pneumonia or lipid pneumonia. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Do you remember that? It was a big thing. People were just dying from, from vaping. Um, brief tangent, really not the learning point here. But yeah, vaping actually, uh, there were a few 
especially ones that contain marijuana. They're calling it popcorn pneumonia or popcorn lung. And it basically comes from a long time ago, there was a buttered popcorn factory and the workers were inhaling aerosolized butter and it caused something called lipid pneumonia. And that's basically where a oily lipid, uh, such as butter, uh, gets into your lungs and it's very, very, very hard for your lungs to get this out. And the yeah. problem is, is pretty much what it is, is you treat the symptoms and either the lungs finally move this stuff out or you die. And so you had people dying as a direct result uh, of vaping. So I anyway. If they, fi- they figured out the culprit was the uh, vitamin E acetate, right? In the yes. uh, marijuana products. That's exactly it. Yeah. The vitamin E acetate did something uh, to the surface tension of the vaped liquid that made it just impossible to get out. So and so that was the case here. Did uh, or at least no confirmation. No confirmation on that. It's just kind of an interesting finding that four weeks ago uh, the patient was vaping a marijuana product and had a persistent pneumonia that was unresponsive to antibiotics because lipid pneumonia will not be responsive to antibiotics. Now, not just not just for because she's using marijuana daily. I'm imagining she's probably still you know like smoking. That's. Uh, she yeah. claims she hadn't used it since before. Actually, I'll have to scroll back up a little bit in the treatment here. But yeah, she actually has not used it. She says she has not used the the day that her symptoms got worse. So I guess it's entirely possible she's been using it since then. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. I so, maybe I miss maybe I misunderstood that. I mean, right. you probably did, but probably. Anyway, so yeah. But anyway, she had a pneumonia uh, that was not responsive to a second round of antibiotics uh, and she vaped. So it, it's a possibility, but I don't have confirmation on that at all. So all right. Let's talk a little bit about some of the things that are going on. So we already talked about how little things matter, and that is get that neb right. Avoid sibutitis. Like, it gets so easy to try and fall into, you know, the, all right, I gave the nebulizer, uh, so I'm good. It's like, no, you got to make sure that actually works. And sometimes this can actually cross into questioning as well. Uh, A common... yeah. Yeah, a common trap that new paramedics will fall into is, um, so for example, when you're a new paramedic and you come out, you've got that sample history mnemonic in your head, you've got the OP, uh, the OPQRST in your head, and a lot of times brand new medics will tend to ask questions without really evaluating the answer. Because when you're in school and you're asking those questions to your fake patient, they always give you the right answer, right? I mean, like... Hey, what's your yeah. pain level at? And they, oh yeah, it's a five out of 10, you know, like that. But in the real world, I mean, Spence, what are some of the answers or responses you've gotten to that very question? Like, hey, what's your level of pain at? Oh, it's, you know, it's okay. There. It's good. It's all right. Or people say it's really bad, but they don't give you a number. Yeah, and that's my favorite. Yeah. And you got to understand, we get that number for a reason. It's even if it's not 100% accurate, it can at least help us trend if what we're doing is better or worse. And so, so often I'll see newer patients or newer paramedics rather, uh, accept anything that comes from the patient and then move on to the next question. Hey, so when did this start? Oh, a while ago. Great. Can you describe the pain to me? It's like, well, no, 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 no. You got to know the, you got to know why you're asking the question, and you got to make sure you get the right answer. So that's another way that simutitis affects newer paramedics is they will tend to check boxes instead of ensuring that the question or intervention is actually having the real world, real world impact that it was designed to have in the first place. For sure. Just moving forward. So Spence, let's talk a little bit about confirmation bias. Oh, that's my favorite. Yeah, jump into it. Like, where did like how how did that impact this call? 
Well, I, th- I mean, it, I think it's pretty clear. I think confirmation bias occurs when, you know, you come up with a list of what you think the answer is going to be. And then you just really seek after answers that confirm what you already think that the, the problem is. So in this instance, you know, like the senior paramedic came into the call going like 23 year old looks fine to me. Therefore, you know, in his mind, he's like, they're fine. And I want to justify my belief in that this person is fine because these people that are around me don't seem to think she is. And I don't know why that is. And so he's looking at, he's like, well, that number is clearly wrong because there's no pleth wave. She's not cyanotic and you know, she's 23. So it's, it must be anxiety because that's, you know, what it is. Um, or that's what it is often enough for me to just jump to that conclusion willy nilly. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, I love my use of willy nilly. I'm going to incorporate that more. Exactly. Um, and so that's sort of the weird, it's this weird thing where he's not asking questions or looking for things that would disprove his hypothesis. He's looking for things that will confirm what he believes the thing to be. So, you know, like, huh, okay, oh, you use marijuana for anxiety, but you haven't had any today. Got it. Right. (laughs) Well, and the other thing too is, and this is how bad confirmation bias can get, he does this even in the presence of objective clinical findings that should be pushing him another way. Yeah. Did you already say that? Nope. Sorry. Nope. That's a very valid point. I mean, you know, there he's... This patient clearly is sick. She's working hard to breathe. You know, even if the cyanosis was missed, like the fact that her pulse oximeter is, is you know, low and she's breathing f- really fast and, you know, like she has audible wheezing. The, you said the fire department didn't even need to like, you know, listen with a stethoscope. They're like, yeah, sounds like, uh, sounds like shit to me. <laughs> yeah. We, well, we concur. <laughs> yeah, I concur there's wheezing. She looks I like concur. it. I concur. Yeah. So yeah, and that is that is one of those things. And here's the thing: I don't want to just say the way we're telling the stories. We make it sound like this is just one bad apple in the bunch. This has happened to paramedics that I have known and worked with who are otherwise good paramedics, but it can happen, especially when you're talking about like you know Spencer earlier. You made the joke of the paramedic that's thirty charts down, and his wife wants him to get home on time tonight. <clears throat> That's a paramedic, and sometimes there are situations in this job that can drive good paramedics bad. You'll get a refusal from a cardiac arrest. Right, absolutely. Well, I mean, hey, if we get ROSC, then what do they need to go to the hospital for? Uh, But anyway. (laughs) You're welcome. Yeah, exactly. We'll be back. Anyway, but yeah, it's one of those (laughs) things where it's like these things can happen, and it can happen to the best of us. I would say – if you're listening to EMS 2020 and we're telling you about stuff about like shit that paramedics do, don't ever think that this can't be you. It totally can. Otherwise, we wouldn't tell you about it. And here's the thing. Sometimes this has even been us. So bear that in mind. Confirmation bias uh, is real. And this is where you as a new paramedic have got to understand you have a golden gift that you don't have so much experience that it's colors your assessments in the wrong way. So we've talked about uh, the four-year paramedic in other episodes, but basically what that is, is it's you've been a paramedic long enough to start making assumptions and you haven't been a paramedic long enough to see when your assumptions go wrong. And that is where confirmation bias can seep in. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Catastrophically wrong. That's, that's where the real lessons come in. Absolutely. Yeah. That's uh, go listen to the shocking mistakes episode. If you haven't, 
go listen to the shocking mistakes episode and you can see where we're being a four the, the four-year paramedic curse uh can yeah. really take place so and it also brings up you know the next talking point which is numbers need context absolutely uh, shock shot that was present in shocking mistakes as well yeah um why don't you uh why don't you explain? Yes. What, do you, what does that mean? Uh, so numbers need context has been one of my, even when I was in paramedic school, this used to make me really mad because I went to paramedic school with quite a bit of experience as a basic uh, in a uh, busy system. And then you kind of get the, uh, we call it the zero to hero route, which by the way, nothing wrong with that route, more power to you. But zero to hero is I have been in school my entire, you know, emergency Ex- career. Yep. And I've never once set foot in an actual system. Uh, that's the zero to hero route. So, but anyway, numbers need context. We're going to talk. Well, first, let's talk about this patient in the story. At the end of it, the patient saturations had finally come up to 98%. But the intern super correctly said, hey, 98% is a good SAO2, but her work of breathing is still really, really high. So we need to keep treating. And in this case, the intern is right. That is absolutely correct because 98% is a good saturation for a 23-year-old female that isn't working hard for it. So if you have a 23-year-old female that's just sitting down, doesn't have a lot of worker breathing, there's no wheezes, there's no nothing, and they have 98%, yeah, don't touch it, don't treat it, there's nothing going on. But if you have the same person that otherwise has no known lung disease that you're aware of, and they're getting 98% sats, but they are working like uh, an overheated locomotive, that's a problem. And that needs to be treated. They should be achieving, yeah, they should be achieving 98% easily. Another really good example would be pediatrics and like compensation. So we also have the the seizure episode, um, which is really, I believe the title I put was Seize Sure. Uh, but yeah. anyway, I thought it was clever. Maybe no one else. It did. is. It is clever. Thank I you. I like it. Uh, but yeah, go listen to the seizure episode. And in there, the the paramedics are trying to assess this patient for hypotension, and they use blood pressure as a line to cross, but they shouldn't have because the problem is, is that pediatrics will hold a decent blood pressure even though they're circling the drain. The blood pressure is actually the last thing to fall. And so if you're waiting for the blood pressure to fall in a pediatric before you start treating them for signs of shock or before you start treating them for shock, you're already behind the ball. So again, numbers need context. Or, you know, the heart rate. You know, this this is the final example I I think that we will probably throw in here. But, um, you know, like if I'm running and, you know, my heart rate's 150, like that's normal. But if I'm sitting on a couch... And my heart rate's 150, you know, and I'm having, you know, chest pain. Or then that's a different thing. It's not, then, you know, then it becomes concerning. So, you know, like it's it's the context in which we find the vitals in, you know, it's the history, it's what, you know, their activity. And it's, it's the whole picture put together and the vitals are just a small piece of that. So, you know, yeah. Exactly. You can't, yeah, no one, no one vital sign needs to stand on its own. And remember, you guys are smart. You don't need to just see a vital sign there and call it good. So yeah, so that's pretty much this call. This call is a good example of a lot of things. So just remember when you're going through a call or when you're getting into this field, know your equipment. 
and avoid simutitis. Uh, avoid simutitis by knowing how to use your equipment and making sure that when you're asking questions, you're getting the answers you actually need. Make sure that the things you are doing off that checklist in your head, that simulation checklist in your head, are actually having the real world impact that they should. Don't get stuck in confirmation bias. Remember, you need to do a full assessment every single every single time and pay attention to those objective findings. Like Spencer always likes to say, don't talk yourself out of a reasonable course of action. And finally, and, good. And cast a wide net so that you don't just look for one thing. Look for the next thing that it could be. Absolutely. Keep turning over rocks. And finally, your numbers need context. No one vital sign by itself paints the entire picture. Always make sure, look at your patient, look at other vital signs, make sure that those numbers are giving you the information that you need. So uh, with that, I don't have anything more to say on this episode. Spencer, any pearls of wisdom that you weren't able to get in? No, man. You, uh, we, I, think, I think we hit it. All right. Thank God. So anyway, uh, that is a, another episode of EMS 2020. Uh, episodes are every other Wednesday. So if you are listening to this episode brand new, it'll be sadly two weeks before you get another one. But hey, that's okay. In the meantime, feel free to visit us on Facebook or Instagram at EMS 2020 on Facebook and EMS 2020 show on Instagram. You can also send us an email at EMS 2020 podcast at gmail.com. Uh, give us your questions, your comments, any stories that you would like us to pick apart and uh, we'd be happy to hear them and have them and with that have a good one